I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and I'm so pleased to be joined today by Alex Marr, who is the author of Witches of America, which was a New York Times notable book and editor's pick. She's been a finalist for the National Magazine Award in feature writing, and she's the director of the feature-length documentary, American Mystic. She lives in the Hudson Valley and New York City, and her latest book is a big well-researched, just weirdly gripping book called 70 Times 7. Welcome, Alex. Thank you, Maris. Great to be here. I know I, I, I don't study the Bible so often these days, but, but I feel like I know the quotes that are often used to justify violence as retribution, like the eye for an eye. But tell me about 70 times seven, the name of the book. Yeah. So I took the title of the book from a moment in the book of Matthew, where one of the disciples asks Jesus sort of in a huff, you know, are you telling me I'm supposed to essentially accept when someone does wrong against me? What? How many times? Seven times? What are we talking about? And Jesus answers, no, I'm 70 times seven, right? As if to imply you should be prepared to forgive others who do wrong against you, you know, some some infinite number of times, let's say. And it's a line from, it's a moment from the Bible that meant a lot to one of the characters who's central in the book. So it comes up later on. And it was a conversation I had with Penguin Press, my publisher, you know, the, just the issue of, is this going to be too mysterious of a title for certain readers? But I loved that. And I think it's also been really fun for me 
to see who knows what the mm. title means. It's not always people who are sort of like devout Christians or religion scholars. So that's been really interesting. A memory I have, a vague memory I have from the 80s is the time that the Pope asked for a young girl's life to be spared. And this book brought it all back. I, I'm wondering how you first learned about this case of the murder of Ruth Benke. Well, at a certain point, you know, five or six years ago, I started doing some research into violent crimes committed specifically by women. Because hmm. I was just very curious what kind of patterns one might find there. The percentage of women who commit violent crimes is just radically smaller than the, the number of men who do the same. I mean, it's one of those ways in which it's, you know, a gender divide actually plays out in, in reality. And so along the way, in looking at maybe about a thousand different case summaries, ultimately, I stumbled across Ruth Pelkey's murder and learned that this young girl Paula Cooper, who was only 15 years old at the time, had committed this crime during a sort of robbery gone wrong, right? She lashed out and really, it, it was just a brutal murder at this woman's home. I was so struck by her age, I couldn't really get over that. No. I was struck by the fact that she was sentenced to death for the crime for something she'd done at 15. And really, struck by the fact that a few months later, the victim's grandson chooses to forgive Paula publicly against the wishes of his family, his community, his co-workers, his, his congregation. I mean, he was a loner in coming out in support of Paula and trying to get her off of death row. I'd never heard of anything like that happening before. Since then, I've met a number of people in person through researching the book over the last number of years who've made that choice, but it seemed so radical. And I wanted to figure out what on earth that was all about. Absolutely. And you, and you talk about Bill Pelkey's moment of realization as like a religious revelation, basically. Yeah. So what's so fascinating about Bill to me as a, a, a character, so to speak, is when when this murder occurred, he, you know, he was a, an Indiana boy, grew up in Indiana, steel family, right? His father was a foreman at one of the mills. He started working at 19 at another of the steel mills. I mean, this is really like a, a steel mill zone of Indiana, less so now. But, um, you know, he went to Vietnam. He came back. He went back to work at the mill. He had no personal politics. He had no, you know, identity around making statements in public. He was a union guy. He went to work. He went home. And when this happened, within a few months, he had kind of like an emotional meltdown. A lot of things in his personal life were not going well. And he was up in the crane that he operated at the steel mill, and it was the late shift that he'd been called in for, and just started weeping. You know, he was alone on the shift had nothing to do, and just kind of collapsed and started connecting all the things that were going wrong in his life, all of the ways in which he felt he disappointed his family, with his grandmother's death. And he thought, we're going to let her down 
in this way too. We're going to let her down if we let the state execute this girl in her name. And so he reaches out, he just writes a letter on printer paper he takes from the foreman's office and mails it to death row in Indianapolis. And I just couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I just thought that was such a fraught, fascinating choice to make. And here you have this nearly 40-year-old white man sitting up in the steel mill, handwriting this letter to this teenage black girl from Gary who's on death row. I mean, they had nothing in common except the fact of this crime. Uh, and then they 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 really started to embark on a a genuine relationship. And and I just had to find out more about what, you know, what was that dynamic? What on earth were they talking about? And what, you know, how real was that bond? And it's so interesting to me, and this is a mild spoiler, but I, I think it'll be okay, that by the end, you talk about his relationship with Paula's sister, older sister, Rhonda, who was a little bit more skeptical of this middle-aged man who starts up a friendship with her younger sister who's on death row and the idea that yeah you have to be wary about taking part in someone else's life transformation and, and like playing a role in that and you 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 do cover both sides i guess so compassionately and generously Oh, thank you. That was, that took, you know, that was something that was really important to me to try to speak to and understand as many people as possible. I wanted to make sure to really understand this single event from as many angles as possible. And Rhonda in particular was so important to me in terms of just trying to have that conversation and connect with her. But it was also a really delicate situation if you can imagine, her sister was 15 when she committed this terrible murder. Rhonda was 18 or 19. She was in a total state of shock, realizing what was going on for her sister. She had no idea how this could have happened. She didn't see her sister as this violent person. She didn't have a violent track record. And in choosing to stand up for her sister, she was rejected by everyone she knew. Friends she had, the the sort of makeshift family at the church she was baptized at, everybody froze her out. That was it. You know, the press hounded her. She received racist death threats. You know, it was it was a very, very bad scene. And she she refused to abandon her sister. They remained in such a close relationship throughout their lives. You know, Rhonda still calls Paula the love of her life, you know, and I was really wary of her feeling like I was hounding her, you know, mm -hmm. trying to have a conversation about this incredibly traumatic time in her life. And so I waited, you know, and with a book, you know, there is this element of time being on your side versus being a newspaper reporter on a deadline. And so for about three years, I just waited. I put out feelers to mutual friends. I, I tried to get a sense of how she was doing. And finally, one day, uh, someone said to me, you know, I think she's doing pretty well right now and might be open to just saying hi to you, feeling you out. 
And so she became this incredible missing piece of the puzzle because she was able to tell me what it was like growing up with Paula, you know, tell me about their relationship, even through those long years of her being on death row and in prison. And that was that gave me the ability to create a portrait of Paula as a girl so that you can meet her at the beginning of the book before these terrible events happen and just have 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 some kind of way of relating to her as a human being, you know? And I think that, you know, to go back to what you're saying about the relationship between Bill and Rhonda, Rhonda had the same reaction that I think most readers would have to the idea of someone from a victim's family suddenly saying like, oh, you know what, we should all become friends. <laughs> you know, <laughs> This is not typical behavior. And it certainly goes against everything about how our justice system is structured. You know, the prosecutor keeps these sides apart. It doesn't benefit a prosecutor to have the victim's family wanting to reach across the aisle. It complicates things, right? So there's this great moment that I describe where, where Bill has written to Paula's grandfather and said, you know, like, I'd love to visit with you, get to know you. I've forgiven Paula. And Rhonda just says, are you kidding me? That sounds insane. I'm taking no part in this. What are you talking about? So I think that's a very human reaction. It's also, you know, Gary historically has a very strong Black community and dealt with a lot of tensions around almost like Jim Crow South level segregation over the years. So an older white guy reaching across the aisle was particularly suspect, right? Absolutely. And, and and it's funny how Rhonda alienated her family in a very similar way that Bill ended up doing. That there, there's a, an interesting parallel there. Well, I think that for Paula and Rhonda, they really had no support network aside from this one grandfather. Mm -hmm. So that was that was a big difference between the two families. You know, Bill came from this this large extended family, Baptist family, strong community, although he was a little bit of, I think he enjoyed more of a kind of 70s lifestyle for a period than the rest of the family related to. <laughs> I described that a little in the book. And I, I really like, love which that woman got... is this? <laughs> yeah, I know. He did love women. He was he open about women. that. <laughs> but I, I, I really loved that you had someone who had a very this kind of revelation, right, that drove this change of heart towards Paula that was based in his Christian faith. But he was openly telling me, look, you know, I'm a screw up like anybody else. I'm I'm not trying to sell anyone on the idea that I'm some sort of super devout, flawless Christian guy. I, I love I love I really appreciated being able to kind of talk openly about faith versus just being a normal human being, because I, I have sort of a a mixed bag of beliefs myself, and certainly I'm not a devout Christian. And so I wanted to kind of see into Bill's way of thinking, but also keep in mind, you know, it was important to me the book would be for people of any kind of background, right? So I tried to treat his faith like any other important element in a character's narrative. And that makes such a good contrast to you introduce a character person later, uh, Victor Stribe, who really becomes aware that so much of how we as a nation feel about the death penalty 
is so involved in emotion and religion and angst and yelling. And it's helpful to take an approach that, that favors data. Yeah, it's really, it was really kind of, um, fun for me. You know, there's this chorus of characters in this book, right? And at the core, I think there's Paula and Bill and their incredibly fraught relationship. But I thought of everyone else in this sort of Venn diagram of circles around them, right? And um, it was really a pleasure for me to get to know a number of these attorneys and legal scholars because I'm an enormous nerd. And I, I really, it was this great source of relief, right? You're in the middle of this incredibly emotional, heavy material. And you're like, okay, here are the heroes coming in with the data. So you have someone like Victor Stribe who had been born and raised in Indiana, a Hoosier all the way who ends up in Cleveland as a law professor, and he, he just sort of stumbles across this area of, of the justice system that hadn't been examined much at all at the time. This was in the early 80s, which is namely like most Americans were not aware that we had capital punishment available to children, essentially. In some states, there was no minimum, minimum age. In Indiana, Paula Cooper's case revealed that the minimum age on the books was 10 years old for the death penalty. And there was a lack of awareness among the public, but also among lawmakers and elected mm -hmm. representatives. So Victor took this fact and ran with it. And his feeling was, we'll be able to change our justice system if we have a better understanding of what it is that we are really doing, that we have a history in this country of executing kids, of sentencing kids to death. So he came up with a figure of about, you know, 300 something kids who had been executed over the years since colonial times, but also 200, I don't have the exact number in front of me, but it's, it's 200 something jurors who had been sentenced to death since the 70s, right? So it's not a practice from long ago that died out. It's something in the present tense, in the present tense of the book. So what the book then traces on this other kind of narrative level, so we have like a few through lines, right, is the work of Victor Stribe and a number of other attorneys um, who are the nerdy heroes of the narrative who helped to bring about an end to the death penalty for teenagers as recently as 2005. I mean, I, I, it took a lot for me to process how recently that was still something available in this country. So it was... It was an interesting challenge to try to dramatize, you know, the brainstorming, the paperwork, the showing up in front of the bench in one court, the bench in the state Supreme Court, showing up in front of the U.S. Supreme Court, you know, and, and how bit by bit, case by case, this team of attorneys fought this battle. And Victor, I should say, was on the appellate team for Paula Cooper. So he was a key part in arguing her case in front of the Indiana Supreme Court, which is a, you know, a major pivotal moment in the book. Let's go back to Paula's original trial, though, because it, you cover that so well, too. And it's such a clear example of all of the ways that the justice system, or many of the ways that the justice system can be terribly flawed. Tell me a little bit about her first attorney and and the advice that he gave to her? Well, something that's 
really fascinating about Paula's initial situation in the courts is that she 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 never had a trial. Her public defender, Kevin, suggested that she plead guilty on a capital charge, which is a pretty extreme move. Part of that was based on his personal relationship with the judge on her case, Judge Kimbrough, who was such a fascinating character. Yeah. He was the first, the first black attorney in Lake County, Indiana, to hold a number of roles. And he certainly was the first and for a time the only criminal court judge who was African-American it, in, in an area that had a really robust African-American community. So he was this important figure. He was liberal. He was openly against the death penalty. And he was put on this case, which was a source of a lot of pain for him. Kevin Ralford, the public defender, then assumed, well, you know what? If we plead guilty, the judge will decide in our favor. And we don't know how our jury is going to go. I've also worked for him in the past. And I just feel, you know, that that was kind of the tone. We don't have much to go on. Paula's confessed. Let's just give it a go. It was an enormous risk. And so at her sentencing hearing, sometimes a sentencing hearing in a capital case can take days. This was hours, right? I mean, it was the paperwork. If you ordered a transcript of that sentencing hearing, you know, her appellate attorney later on would call it like an itsy bitsy transcript. This thing was not fat. There were not many experts called. There were not many witnesses called. And there was really no, there were no statements made about how rare capital punishment was for teenagers, right? And so Paula pretty predictably was sentenced to death. You something that really broke my heart is she has her moment right before the judge sentences her, where she's able to make a personal statement in court. And it is, I read that transcript over so many times. And no matter how I looked at it, it was obvious that she had had no coaching. She was up there just saying whatever a teenage girl might say when she's angry, frustrated, terrified, pleading for her life. It was not diplomatic. She was not convincingly remorseful. She said all the wrong things. And, um, you know, it was one of those moments where it really hit me. This is a very young person in an unbelievably high-stakes situation in this courtroom. How is this possible? So, you know, it's it 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 was fascinating to unpack. And then and then I also, you know, I got to know the prosecutor in the case incredibly well, the Lake County prosecutor for 10 or 11 years. And so, I mean, I saw it from his perspective too. We had far more conversations than I'd anticipated, and that was deeply fascinating. I mean, you have to tell us all about Jack Crawford now, please. <laughs> <laughs> So Jack Crawford, you know, as I mentioned, he was the prosecutor in Lake County for for over a decade. And he was easily, you know, one of the youngest figures in local politics at that time in that region. Lake County was a big deal as a, a hotbed of corruption and crime on a lot of different levels. 
where the running line was that it was just as bad as Cook County, just fewer zeros in terms of, you know, the money that was going missing and whatnot. (laughs) (laughs) So it was a very complicated situation. Jack came in with a, you know, a kind of Kennedy haircut. And, you know, he had a, a bust of JFK on his desk. He had a quote from RFK on his wall in the office. I mean, he really saw himself in that mode and had enormous aspirations for his political life. So he came in blazing on a tough on crime platform and was elected in a landslide and started to really make a name for himself in Lake County. And that included, so, you know, when you come in on a tough on crime platform, which is still a very successful way of campaigning today, as we all know, you're hitting on people's emotions you're, you you sort of promise people that you're going to be aggressive. And then that really, I think, boxes out opportunities for nuance. The question is not really justice. Like, what is justice in this scenario? It's we know what justice is. It is the most severe punishment available to us, right? So he went for the death penalty as prosecutor 22 times, which is a big number. And he got it, I think it was 17 times. So when this came up for high school girls committing a robbery. One of them kills this elderly woman during the process. He was making public statements that if if he could find a way to charge all of them with capital with a capital crime, he was going to go for it. So he was really fascinating because, you know, his his ambition, he was like this shiny, ambitious public figure. And the trajectory that his career ultimately takes. I don't want to spoil it for readers, no. but it's just <laughs> so fascinating. So fascinating. I, I could the, not the have photo predicted. The about his later on years is is really just incredible. <laughs> I, I do think it's an incredible, it's an incredible archival find <laughs> there. But yeah, I don't, I don't want to give it away, but I think. Yeah, don't. What, one thing I'll say though is, is, you know, working on a book for five years is infuriating and crazy making, but it does leave you open to Finding these larger arcs for the people you're talking to over mm-hmm. time, you know, you get a sense really of the passage of time in this way that from it was so profound for me, you know, like to see, to take, to to kind of meet people in the past through these conversations, like what their lives were like in the 80s, and then bring it into the present day. And along with that, to get a sense of, you know, how the system has changed or hasn't changed it was really fascinating. It was it was definitely the largest undertaking that I'd ever, you know, taken on, I guess. It shows. It's a, this is a the the years you spent working on this are, are very <laughs> apparent. Another point that you talk about quite often is that the victims' rights movement became more and more powerful. And that kind of goes along with tough on crime, like we we have to honor the victims no matter what. But there is just about no room to say, well, how do we know what will actually help the victims heal? Right. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, I think uh, for, there were a couple couple aspects of our justice system that I'd really never spent time thinking about until working on this book. One was this idea just just an awareness that you have family on both sides of a crime who may actually in reality have a lot in common. 
they may have the potential for some kind of dialogue, right? And that's almost never addressed. And then the other part of it was was what you were just bringing up. The, the assumption tends to be that whatever the prosecutor, whatever charges the prosecutor wants to bring on any case, are it, that's going to be that's going to be in line with the desires of the victim's family, right? And there are plenty of instances where that is just not the case. So you have someone like Bill Pelkey, who then comes back around and says, you know, actually, this was the wrong move going for the death sentence for this girl. And he ends up then meeting a number of people later in the book through this kind of really improvised network of phone tree, like meetings in people's houses. He finds other people who are murder victims' family members who did not want the death penalty for the perpetrator. And so their voices are really powerful and contradictory, but they didn't fit in with this sort of Reagan era idea that the victim is super important, victims rights, because the 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 Reagan the, the Reaganite assumption was well great, victims voices and victims family members voices are going to be a great tool for our sort of tough on crime agenda for prosecutors around the country. It, it, that that was the assumption that they're going to fall in line. So Bill's kind of renegade network ends up throwing a wrench in the works in a number of counties around the country. And and so I've, it was so wild and fascinating to trace that that historical narrative as well. Yeah, he it's incredible how he finds this whole community of people who are are not entirely organized. And he he's, he walks the walk, <laughs> literally almost. Yeah. Oh, that's true. Right. I could I could ask you many more questions, but let's let's save some for the readers who should definitely go out and read this book seventy times seven. Alex, <laughs> before we go, would you please recommend some books for us? Sure. So a couple come to mind. A novel I read recently that I absolutely loved. It's a new book just came out is Take What You Need by Idra Novi. I absolutely adored this novel. And it's set in rural Pennsylvania in contemporary times in the sort of recent years. And it's it's about a woman who's left the region, now has a more kind of cosmopolitan life, and she is drawn back home to this area that she has cut ties with by the sudden death of her stepmother, only to learn that her stepmother actually had secretly started to explore a vocation as a visual, like a radical visual artist in her home. Before you know it, she's drawn back into that world. There's a young guy who's a very kind of like, would be seen as a very typical local who lives next door. And this the the there's just an amazing tension there. I I I followed Idra's work for a while. I think it's her best book yet. And there's it's it just really gets at the heart of feeling alienated from where you're from, but the impossibility of fully escaping that. And I also love the descriptions of making physical visual art. You know, this woman's welding sculptures like a crazy person in her dilapidated living room. And I'm, I'm someone who's just really, I'm obsessed with looking at, at new work around New York City. You know, I go to the galleries a lot and I just felt like 
her descriptions of making art were just so fantastic. You know, there's sexual tension. Anyway, the big <laughs> recommendation on that book. And so the other book I'd mention, I've read numerous times, even though it's, I don't know, 1,200 pages long. It was an enormous influence on 70 times 7, is The Executioner's Song by Norman Mailer. So it's a mid-70s book that won the Pulitzer as a novel, even though it really is a very deeply reported nonfiction book in so many ways. He wrote about the crimes and execution of Gary Gilmore in Utah in Mormon country and wrote the book really very shortly after the execution had taken place. It was published. And I just thought the way he relentlessly insisted on, on giving the perspectives of so many people in the system, the people in these victims' families, the media swooping into Utah for this big, morbid event. The scope of that and the cumulative impact of that kind of storytelling really had a big impact on me. I know Mailer's controversial these days, but honestly, he was controversial when he was alive. The things we yell about him now, people yell to his face. So, you know, <laughs> but that's a, a big one for me. and a wife stabber. You can be both. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, I think I think we're allowed to steal the best tricks from everybody. That's kind of my that. attitude. Very good. Alex Marr, thank you so much. Thank you, Maris. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.